For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how a woman and her husband cope with the fear, shock, and confusion of her cancer diagnosis. Meet one of five 2015 MacArthur Fellowship recipients at the University of Arizona, anthropology professor Brackett Williams. Learn about the surprising origin of an exhibition at the Tucson Museum of Art featuring works by Picasso, Degas, Matisse, and many others. And explore the early history of Westerns filmed in the Southwest. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. More than 30,000 cases of cancer will be diagnosed in Arizona in the coming year. For the patients and their families, a cancer diagnosis can bring a range of emotions, including fear, shock, anger, and confusion. As Gisela Tellis reports, some of the best perspectives to help deal with those feelings may come from those closest to the disease, including oncologists, nurses, and patients themselves. Being diagnosed with cancer, it's a very tough diagnosis for some patients. You're living your normal life and all of a sudden you hear from the doctor you have cancer. Dr. Hanny M. Babaker is the chief fellow at the University of Arizona Cancer Center. Some patients would describe it as the ticking clock just started in their life. And it's very, very uh, tough for families and clinicians. That best advice I give to patients to hang in there, keep up the hope, and try to live with their family around them, try to gain all the support they can, and work with their doctors to fight this cancer and keep looking at the light at the end of the tunnel. Shot in a beer. Michelle Curlew was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer over a year ago. She and her husband, Michael, speak from personal experience with a new diagnosis. I think you need a pad and a pen and a really good level-headed friend. You don't need anybody who's more dramatic than you are. And if you're willing to want to live and fight, then you need to find your battle buddy who's willing to want to win and fight with you. When you go in for your initial consultation with cancer like Michelle's that's terminal, we never wanted to know numbers, but we want to know options. So on that first consultation, Talk to them about options. What are my options? So if we go option A, is there an option B, C, and D, and so on and so forth? So when you go in there and you get the test results, or you get the results, if it's good, then you're going to proceed on your current path. But if it's bad, okay, now I got option B. So you have different options. And like Michelle, bring somebody in that's just as strong as you are, or if not stronger. Because if you do get bad news, you're going to need somebody to lean on. If one of the treatment options involves chemotherapy, it's most often a specially trained oncology nurse, like Veronica Coleman from the UA Cancer Center, who infuses those drugs to the newly diagnosed. I think the first thing that I would say is, let's just take it one step at a time. You know, you can't cross the bridge until you get to it, and you have to kind of take steps up to knowing exactly what's the staging, um, what kind of treatment you're gonna need, um, you know, what that's going to entail. 
people hear the word cancer and they automatically think the worst. So um, I think it's just, okay, one step at a time, let's see what's the first thing we need to do and then we will go from there. As a specialist in gastrointestinal cancers, oncologist Umad Alkuza with the UA Cancer Center has delivered hundreds of initial diagnoses to his patients and has his own perspective. I think take a deep breath, get all the facts, because the majority of people that get diagnosed with cancer, they are treatable, they do live a long time, they do survive, there's a chance for cure. The second bit of advice I would give them is to make sure they have a good support network. The third thing is making sure you seek care at an institution that really specializes in cancer. Personally, I would think it would be best to be treated at a center that has people that subspecialize in certain cancers. For example, take me, I, I see six cancers, that's it. Out of all the cancers that are out there, I see six. I'm able to keep up with all the literature that comes out for those six cancers as opposed to if I had to treat everything. Um, and then being treated at a center that also understands the value of healing the mind, spirit, a holistic approach, not ignoring exercise, your diet. Beyond the initial diagnosis and in the midst of treatment, cancer can bring with it some unexpected realizations. Michelle Curlew again. You get this horrible news and all of your friends and family like just embrace you and love you. I have never felt so happy in all of my life. The intensity of how loved and supported we are is the most incredible, you can't be miserable. I get to know, you know, that we all know someday someone's going to die. And so I think this is just like, the blessing is the warning. I'm Gisela Tellis for Arizona Spotlight. That story was produced by Tom Clesby. Michelle and Michael's experience is the focus of the Arizona public media documentary Winning by Living, One Cancer Story. It debuts on PBS 6 Sunday at 6 p.m., followed by a panel of experts taking questions on a live call-in program called Resources for the Newly Diagnosed at 7 p.m. The schedule is online at azpm.org. The MacArthur Fellowship Grant celebrates talent and creativity among academics, scholars, and artists. The more than $600,000 award was established in 1981 and is administered by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Each year, around two dozen recipients receive the honor. Five of the 2015 honorees are among the faculty at the University of Arizona. Next, Tony Perkins talks with Briquette Williams about her career and the path that led her to be recognized as a MacArthur Fellow. 25 years ago, anthropologist Briquette Williams chose to travel to a small, struggling South American country to examine the sensitive issue of cultural identity. Because of coming into uh, the worst positions and the worst con working conditions is to compare suffering and adversity. The country was Guyana, 
a nation where people had declared their independence from British colonialism one decade earlier. Suffering and adversity becomes currency for moral claims um, and for political and economic claims that can follow from moral claims for groups' efforts to position themselves in a social order, but also in some instances to lay claim to the right to lead the nation's cultural production. Williams received a master's degree in education from the University of Arizona and a doctorate in cultural anthropology from the John Hopkins University. But it was her research in ethnicity and national development among the Guianese that earned her what some academics call a genius grant, the MacArthur Fellowship, in 1997. I don't know, some people call it the um, academic lottery, <laughs> the academic lottery. It's a, it's a secret nomination, and so it's not like applying for a grant, which you can sort of have some control over it by the proposals you write. But at the same time, it comes with no strings attached in the sense that it doesn't designate a product. And in that sense, um, it allows you to um, either continue to follow the methods that you're following to produce, um, to produce research or the freedom to sort of imagine method as you go along. In her 1991 book, Stains on My Name, War in My Veins, Williams chronicled the impact of race and social standing among Africans and East Indians in Guyana. She compares it to a similar struggle for ethnic groups in the United States. Williams says every immigrant class faces the same challenge of determining how to fit in a complex social fabric. But we have at times had um, restrictions on which ethnic groups could come in from which places and um, partly in an effort to have skilled workers as opposed to workers that required education and skilling before they could make a contribution as we say to the to the nation and anthropology has engaged those kinds of issues in the United States and the other parts of the developed world in comparison to the same kinds of processes that arose as what they term colonialism and colonial practices of social control. Williams says becoming a MacArthur Fellow brings with it a large degree of pressure. She notes that some recipients wonder if they are truly worthy of the honor and they worry about living up to the scholarly standard which the award implies. I don't take any of that seriously. I've kind of plodded along throughout my career doing what I think comes next and publishing only that which I think best represents my intellectual sense of an issue at a moment that I have something to offer for publication and that didn't really change. That was the joy and the pain of um, trying to do research that I thought I could do in two years. I don't know what um, how other people respond, but that was my, that's my response to having received it. It was definitely an honor. She calls it a lifetime honor that comes from dedication and hard work, tying together a common cultural thread between North and South Americans. Next week, I'll discuss the importance of the MacArthur Fellowship with UA professor, linguist, and poet Ophelia Zepeda. Stay tuned for more of the show right after this break.
Welcome back to Arizona Spotlight. The Tucson Museum of Art has had record attendance for its current exhibition, a collection of sculptures and canvases produced by some of the 19th and 20th century's most prestigious artists. The figure examined, Masterworks from the Kasser Mokery Art Foundation, is built around the art collection of Alexander and Elizabeth Kasser. In the political turmoil that preceded World War II, the Kassers founded a branch of the Swedish Red Cross in their native Hungary and helped hundreds of people escape persecution. When the Kassers and their two children immigrated to the United States in 1949, they brought with them a love of both classical and contemporary art. To better understand what is on display in the exhibit, I talked with Julie Saucy, the chief curator at the Tucson Museum of Art. If you had to explain the importance of the Kasser collection to someone in a few choice words, how would you do it? Well, this exhibition is one of the most uh, comprehensive looks at the late 19th, early 20th century and the radical changes that were happening, primarily with the figure in sculpture and in painting. So you're seeing the cusp of change from a more academic viewpoint to one that started to embrace modernist principles more expressive works, works that were looking at psychological underpinnings uh, in the human psyche. Even to someone who's not an aficionado of sculpture, there are so many amazing names connected with this exhibit. Tell us a little bit about the success and the longevity that it's had here at the museum with attracting the public. Well, it's been remarkable. We knew it would be a popular exhibition, but we had no idea it would be this dramatic. Our membership has tripled since this show opened, our attendance has tripled, and even our museum store uh, sales have tripled. So it really tells us a lot about if you bring quality exhibitions to the museum, they will come. So we've been really gratified by the show of support in the community for seeing these works. Uh, it's been uh, a real joy to see the place bustling with people who come back time and time again to see the works because we have more than 120 works by some of the greatest artists of the early 20th century. And uh, uh, there's a lot to see. So it's, it's very exciting to see this much activity here. I then had the opportunity to tour the galleries with the Kasser's son, Michael. Michael Kasser is an engineer, real estate developer, art collector, and art supporter who lives in Tucson. Actually, the story starts when we first came to the United States uh, and this was in Philadelphia, and there were eight of us. My dad and mother always were art lovers, and they had had a collection, small one, when they were lived in Hungary, but we had to leave Hungary after World War II. And it starts with uh, they going to a flea market and buying a piece for $2, which I have hanging in my office. What's significant about it, or what would you say about it? Well, it's just uh, that they started, uh, the little money that they had, they, uh, they started collecting art with it. And uh, we got here in 49, and my father was an engineer, and he was a very talented uh, engineer, and he had a good business head. By about 1960, 64, when I was already in college, he started to become successful in business. They, they bought art, and art was a lot cheaper back then than it is now. So, I mean, this collection would be impossible. Not impossible, but much more expensive to collect today. Tell me about one of the earliest lessons you remember about appreciating art, about connecting with art through your parents' guidance. Well, they, they dragged me sometimes to the museums, you know, <laughs> anywhere we'd go, museum time. <laughs> 
And it was tough to say no because, <laughs> you know, they didn't want to be left alone. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I started to learn about art, and I was always uh, uh, an art lover. I th at one time I thought I'd be an artist, but when I realized how terrible I was, <laughs> you know, it's good to realize early, <laughs> you know, so you can move on. <laughs> We're looking at uh, uh, two figures um, in a sort of a lover's embrace, you might say, uh, by Rodin. Tell me about this piece. Well, it's called The Eternal Idol. It's uh, erotic, as you can see. It's uh, one of... Uh, 12 castings that were made. The purpose of his sculpture was to make uh, multiples. And uh, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, and it's a piece that my uh, father had seen pictures of. He was a student in, uh, in France between the wars. And uh, he, I, I think he went to museums and he saw this piece. Uh, and he'd always felt that there was to be something that uh, He'd want him. Obviously, he was a pretty erotic guy. <laughs> Looking at this, now that I think about it, you know, you don't think about your parents that way. <laughs> but, but they were collected or were attracted to works that had a sensual quality to them. Sensual and, and the figure examined, which is exactly the title of this particular show. Uh, it shows the type of sculpture they did, uh, they did collect. Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, they did have a sensual quality. After your father became established in business, did he did he travel the world to collect these pieces, or were these acquired mostly in America? No, he he did travel the world. He his business was international. So a business trip <clears throat> presented an opportunity to him yes. to go out and scout. How did your mother feel about that? Was she uh, part of actively choosing the pieces? Yes. Oh yeah, they were they, they were like a team, and uh, they were they became friends with uh, uh, Henry Moore, Jacques Lipschitz. And in their later days of their collection, they would collect some of their things, which you will see. Some of their works are here. And now on this wall, we are looking at two pieces by Andy Warhol that I would say seem atypical from the work that is usually focused on. I like to talk about this one because this is my wife's. And she lived, when I met her, she lived in a studio in Manhattan. And her next door neighbor... Uh, who lived in a little studio apartment in Manhattan, too, was a friend of Warhol's, and when her neighbor moved out, she gave this to my wife. And we had it confirmed that it's a Warhol, so that's why it's part of the exhibition. She's very proud of this. I agree, this is not the typical Warhol that we see in uh, mm -hmm. magazines and so forth. Showing me this piece of art that your wife added to the collection yes. tells me that the Castor Collection is a growing, living entity. What's your hope for the future? What do you think of when you think about the legacy that your family is leaving? Well, frankly, uh, it's a, an excellent collection. And I think it's a collection that has made an impact, apparently, here in Tucson. And from here, I think uh, we're moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is sort of similar size, you know, metropolitan community. So it's an opportunity to move the collection through mid-America, so to speak, and, and expose people to... Uh, art that uh, they otherwise wouldn't see. It's really appreciated by the people who, who see it, which is, which is our, our reward. This week, I, Michael Kasser, was announced as the recipient of a 2015 Governor's Award for his dedication to funding and presenting the arts in Southern Arizona. The exhibition, The Figure Examined, Masterworks from the Kasser Mokery Art Foundation, will be on display at the Tucson Museum of Art until April 12th.
Next, film writer Chris DeShiel looks back at two Hollywood westerns that used Arizona as a backdrop and at least partially as inspiration for the stories they told. In the classic Hollywood film, the West was more of an imaginary place than an historical location. A lot of the actual history took place in what we now call the Midwest and the Great Plains, but most Western movies, through a combination of convenience and aesthetic shorthand, seem to occur in the Southwest deserts or canyonlands, and often both. If a story took place in Arizona, it didn't necessarily look any different than all the other Westerns that were quickly shot in the hills of Southern California. Most Americans still lived in the East, so to the average moviegoer, Dodge City, Abilene, and Tombstone may as well have been right next door to each other. It was all the same place, really, Hollywood. The first Western made during the sound era, as it happens, was called In Old Arizona, produced in 1928. The story took the Cisco Kid, an outlaw character created by O. Henry, and turned him into a charming anti-hero. Raoul Walsh, already one of the top filmmakers in the business, took his crew out to Zion National Park in Bryce Canyon in Utah and shot most of the picture with himself starring as the kid. They were driving back to California at night with the intent of shooting some interiors at the Fox studio when, and I'm not making this up, a scared jackrabbit bounded onto the windshield of Walsh's car, shattering it, and a piece of glass injured the director who ended up losing his right eye. He wore an eye patch the rest of his life and apparently enjoyed the impression it made. Anyway, the film was given to Irving Cummings and most of it was reshot with Warner Baxter, a popular romantic lead from the silent era, playing the Cisco Kid. It's a curious little movie. The Kid is a romantic Mexican bandit, apparently with some moral values. He robs the strongbox from a stagecoach but refuses to steal anything from the passengers. He's in love with Tonia Maria, played by Dorothy Burgess, a shallow beauty who cares more about money than the kid. Along comes an army sergeant named Mickey Dunn, played by Edmund Lowe, who's tasked with tracking the kid down and capturing him. And he decides to seduce Tonia in order to do it. Baxter does quite well imitating a Mexican, which is more than I can say for Burgess. Lowe's phony Brooklyn accent is painfully bad, as well as anachronistic for the time period. Listen, baby. I'm going to be transferred next month to Governor's Island. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Where is that? Back to civilization. New York, right at your front door, Chief. <laughs> oh, I'd like to see it. You take me there. Baxter sings a nice ballad, who started the tradition of the singing cowboy in movies. And the film quite obviously showcases the use of sound for its own sake and various effects, musical and otherwise. Some of the outdoor footage from Utah survives, but most of the film appears to have been shot on a soundstage, and it has a slow pace and sometimes exaggerated acting style which seems dated today. But it sure impressed the film industry at the time, receiving four Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Director, and with Warner Baxter winning the award for Best Actor. Now, this was only the second year of the awards. They weren't even called the Oscars yet, so they didn't have the fame and prestige that came later. Still, it's strange that what seems now such a minor performance, although not a bad one, mind you, would win top honors. 
As for Arizona, it's in the title of the film, but that's really about it. Tonight I am sure that these these life I live, he does not pay, but but like the man who is caught in the in the whirl whirlpool, I cannot get out. That is what a thief comes to know. He cannot rub out his past. There's one other and considerably better Arizona Western from the classic era, and it's called, surprise, Arizona, released by Columbia in 1940 and directed by Wesley Ruggles. The picture stars Jean Arthur as a tough pioneer woman in the 1860s in Tucson who wants to start a freight business but runs up against corrupt competitors. Along comes William Holden as a freedom-loving cowboy who later joins the cavalry, and of course she takes a liking to him. You got yourself into my argument over at the saloon. Well, where I'm from, women's supposed to need protection. I'm obliged for the use of your hat, stranger. But I don't ask nor get favors for being what I was born. Yep, that's what I found out. Warren William is the villain, and the plot manages to include Apache Indians, stampeding cattle, the Civil War, and a lot of other classic Western situations. Supposedly, the 39-year-old Arthur was worried that the 21-year-old Holden, this is well before his breakthrough as a star, was too young for her, but she needn't have. Their chemistry together is great. The film is fairly well-written, not in the top tier of great films by any means, but absorbing. There's an excellent bit towards the end where instead of showing us the climactic shootout, we only hear the gunshots from the perspective of other characters anxiously awaiting the outcome. But the thing that really struck me about the movie is how dirty and grimy everything looks. In the opening sequence, for instance, when Holden enters Tucson with a wagon train, we are shown a squalid succession of huts, mostly poor Indians, and it's really like you'd imagine Tucson might have looked then. Say, uh, what's a good hotel here? (laughs) (laughs) Sir, the hotels to be found in Tucson are neither good nor bad. They're non-existent. You mean there ain't one? That's right. Throughout the film, there is a vivid impression of dust, sweat, mud, and general lack of bathing that gives us a more realistic version of the West, despite the conventional good guys, bad guys plot. And for that, I give credit to the director Ruggles, an underrated figure in Hollywood history. The picture was shot in Tucson with some scenes in Sabino Canyon, but most of the sets were built to the west of town on the site of what eventually became Old Tucson Studios. In fact, a few of the buildings from the film are still standing. Arizona premiered here in 1940 at five theaters simultaneously, including the Rialto, the Fox, and the Temple of Music and Art. All of them sold out, with Gene Arthur and William Holden appearing in person, and the evening celebrations featuring a horse-drawn parade and a midnight feast with 3,000 guests. It was the first and last major Hollywood premiere to be held in the Old Pueblo. Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Shield. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can now find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.